Let's go ahead and say a word of prayer, and then we will begin. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you so much for giving us Jesus Christ to die for our sins. Thank you that we can be here in your house tonight. I pray now as we look to the time of Bible study into your word that you would speak to our hearts. I pray that your Holy Spirit would help me and fill me tonight, that you'd help me be able to focus and to get across what you gave me in the study as we just continue to look verse by verse here in Romans chapter 7. We pray that, Lord, our attention spans would be able to take it in for this short time that we have now. I know everybody's busy and tired and some have driven a long way to be here tonight. So we thank you and praise you for all of our blessings in Jesus' name, and we pray that you would be with this time now in Jesus' name. Amen. So real quick recap before we continue going forward. Last week we finished Romans chapter 6. We went all the way through the back half of the chapter, continued to see how Paul talked about we were servants of sin in the past tense that led forth to no fruit except for death. But now that we are saved, God has ordained that we would have fruit unto holiness, verse 22 says, and the end, everlasting life. This is the God's plan for us as Christians, is that we would have fruit and that he gives us eternal life on top of it, not that it's one without the other. For some will have good works without eternal life, and some sadly will enter into eternal life without having the amount of good works done through their life that God had desired for them. And it ends by reiterating the payment for sin. The only place where it leads is death. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And in Romans chapter 7, I believe this week and next week will probably be it for this short series. And like I said, we're going to have a little bit of a format change for Wednesday nights and be starting a new series for the Wednesday after Easter. Then I'll have more to tell you about that probably on Sunday. But as we look now to Romans chapter 7, we said the first five books he spent telling them about salvation by grace through faith. Chapter 6, he turns to answer the natural objections that the Jewish audience will have. You're saying we don't have to keep the law. You're saying we don't have to do good. We're saved by grace. So what? You're saying it doesn't matter how we live. We can continue in sin. And he answers those objections clearly by saying, God forbid. No way. Absolutely not. Is it okay for us to continue in sin? That's not what he's saying. But he did tell them flat out at the end of verse number 14, for ye are not under the law, but under grace. So that's an earth-shattering proposition to the Jews who are being told your entire culture, way of life, what God told you to do clearly in the Old Testament, you're not under the law anymore. That's taken away. That's broken up. That's not God's plan. And we talked last week about how we should be so thankful that we are not under the law, but we are under grace because that's the only way that any of us can stand. And then in chapter 7, the first four verses that we read last week, Paul gives a basic illustration to make the point, not talking primarily about marriage, but talking about our relationship to the law and how now we are dead to the law that we could be, as it were, married unto Jesus Christ. Then he says that if a woman has a husband, she is bound to that husband by the law as long as he is alive. But if the husband dies, she's free to be remarried to another. He's using that basic point as an illustration to say to us, if we were bound to the law forever, and that was God's only plan and the only way we could earn our way to God, we could not be under this current state of grace. But he says the same as the woman, if her husband died, she could be remarried. He says in verse number four, wherefore, my brethren, ye also are become dead to the law, 
by the body of Christ, that ye should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. Again, he over and over again in these two chapters talks about being set free, but then reminding us we should bring forth fruit. The old man is dead, but we are to walk in newness of life. We are to serve Christ. We're to yield to him. We're to bring forth fruit as we journey along sanctification. So he says in verse number four, we are dead to the law. The same as a woman who would be married to a husband that dies and remarried to another, whether you want to say the law died or what the text continues to say is we died, we're crucified with Christ. However you want to look at it, that relationship of us to the Old Testament law as followers of God, we are dead to that now. And it's something totally new and different, which is grace in Jesus Christ. Verse five. For when we were in the flesh, the motions of sins, which were by the law, did work in our members, which is our body, to bring forth fruit unto death. And But now we are delivered from the law, that being dead, wherein we were held, that we should serve in newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. We read that verse and then stopped right there last week without really continuing onward. Two things that verse number seven, verse number seven points out, is the law sin? No, I'm sorry, verse number six. It says we are delivered from the law. Again, he repeats for about three or four times here, just in these two chapters, you're not under the law, you're under grace. You're dead to the law. He says here, you are delivered from the law and you're dead wherein you used to be held. Then again, that we should serve in newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. The scripture also makes this point about the letter of the law or the spirit of the law in 2 Corinthians 3, 6, who also hath made us able ministers of the New Testament, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter killeth, but the spirit giveth life. So here, there in 2 Corinthians 3, 6, it says he's made us able ministers of the New Testament. And even in the New Testament, he says, not of the letter, but of the spirit. The letter killeth, but the spirit giveth life. I think the idea is that the way in the Old Testament, they look to that rigid law and to keep that set of laws and rules as a way to God, as a way to get acceptance from God, is not the way that we are supposed to look at it. We're supposed to be looking at the spirit of it, which is love, which is grace. Yes, we're supposed to keep God's commandments, but not to earn righteousness, not to earn our way to Him, rather to show that we love Him. And as we go about keeping His commandments, we're not supposed to be like the Pharisees, that we become so rigid about keeping a set of rules that we forget what the heart of God is, which is love, mercy, grace, and forgiveness. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to the repentance. Jesus was talking to the Pharisees who were hypocrites because outwardly they did all these things that were good things like fasting and praying, but they were only doing it publicly so that people could see what they were doing and they were forgetting the heart of the matter was they were supposed to walk with God when they fasted and prayed. He also said, woe unto you Pharisees. He said, you're paying tithe of everything that you own, but ye have omitted the weightier matters of the law. 
which now I cannot quote, but he specifically says three of them, which would you look up that verse and Jason will read it for us in a, in a moment. I'm sorry. The weightier matters of the law, something specifically along the lines of mercy. That's the heart of God. So he said, you weren't wrong that you were paying your tithe as I had directed you to do in the law, but he specifically called those other things weightier matters. Jason, can you read it? Matthew 23, 23. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. Judgment, mercy, faith. That's Matthew 23, 23. He specifically looked and he said, it's good you did that, but more than paying out those tithes, the judgment, the mercy, and the faith, those are weightier matters. He said, you should, these ought you to have done while not leaving the other undone. So he said, it's not that you shouldn't have kept that direction to tithe in the Old Testament that you were given, but you were forgetting the things that are more important than that. In other words, you're looking to the letter but you're missing the spirit. Jesus came and lifted all of those. I, I read 600 specific commandments in Old Testament law, the ritualistic type things. But in some ways, he was stricter than what it was written because you could look at the law and say, well, I'm not committing adultery, so technically I'm okay. But Jesus said the lust was still a sin. You could say, well, I haven't committed that murder. But he said, if you hate your brother in your heart, you're still committing the sin. Do you understand what we're saying? The spirit versus the letter. We can keep the letter perfectly, but our, we can still be wrong from the heart of God and the spirit of what was given. Let's look at Galatians chapter 2, and then we'll come back to Romans. Galatians chapter 2 and verse 19. That time change feels a lot different to be in church with it still light out there tonight. That was the other thing I was going to say. It does help with uh, we need to get to the lights being replaced outside, but it's a little bit better now because we have light. It just feels so different, those first couple services and everything you're doing after the time change. I wish they'd do away with that. Okay, back, <laughs> back to the Bible study. That was a commercial break. Galatians chapter 2 and verse 19. For I, through the law, am dead to the law that I might live unto God. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not frustrate the grace of God. For if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. That's a very strong, very good point. If we're going to come to God through the works of the law, Christ didn't even need to die. But he said, I'm dead to the law that I might live unto God. Again, they go hand in hand. That old relationship being ended, being crucified with Christ, who we are before is completely dead, but it doesn't end at salvation. It's to begin that I might live unto God. So let's go back to the book of Romans and continue on. Romans chapter 7 and verse number 7. So we see here from the scripture, the law brought death, and it could only ever bring 
death. Does that mean then that the law was just a very bad thing? No, it does not. Let's see what the text says. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin, but by the law. For I had not known lust, except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. So the law could only lead to death. But the law was not sin. The law was not bad. To the opposite, we'll read in a moment, it says that it was good, it was just, and it was holy. How then is something that could only lead to death by following it something that Paul would say is so good? Here's what the Bible teaches. The Old Testament law was God's gracious plan to bring eternal life to men by teaching us that all of us are sinners. You see, when God gave the law, he knew that no one would be able to keep it perfectly. But it was his desire for the children of Israel and then all of mankind to come to the conclusion we cannot keep this law perfectly and come to God. Therefore, we have to come to Jesus Christ and seek him to be our Savior. The scripture bears this out. The law was a good thing, and its primary purpose was to teach us that we could not keep it, that we were sinners, and that we needed salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Romans 7 and verse 8. But sin, taking occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence. For without the law, sin was dead. Notice what he is saying here. Sin, taking occasion by the commandment, by what was written in the law, rotted me all manner of concupiscence. That word means forbidden longing. It means lust. And again, that can apply to us wanting anything that is not God's will for us to have. It may be the desire to earn our salvation. It may be the desire to be accepted by the world, riches, whatever it is. If God does not want us to have it and we long for it, it is sin. What, do you, what is he saying here? Sin, through the commandments that were given, brought about to his knowledge that he was a sinner. For without the law, sin was dead. In other words, if we could have continued in ignorance without ever being told by God, here's a standard that you have to live up to. And if you can't live up to this standard, it means you're a sinner. We wouldn't have known that we had sinned. Jesus said something similar to the Pharisees when he said, they hate me because if I had not come, they had a cloak for their sin. They could have hidden it. But I'm here calling them out on it and they cannot hide their sin anymore. Therefore, they hate me. Verse 9. For I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. In other words, if God never gave direction, if God never gave instructions, we would look and say we're innocent. How can God hold us accountable when he hasn't given us any rules? And I'll, I'll try to stick to my subject tonight by thinking about people say, what about people who don't know God and who haven't read the Bible? It says the law is written in our heart. Within our heart, we intuitively know we're not supposed to kill someone. We intuitively know there's a creator. So that's a, a whole nother subject. But what he says in verse number nine was, the commandment came, sin revived, and I died. Acts chapter 17 and verse number 30, Paul said this, preaching on Mars Hill, and the times of this ignorance God winked at, 
but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. God has revealed himself. God has told us what we are to do, and his commandment to each and every one of us is that we are to repent. And in times past, God had revealed different levels of things to people. We always came by faith in Jesus Christ. But the bottom line is, the principle I want to take from that verse is that if there's some ignorance there, God looks at it differently than when he tells you what you're supposed to do. And the Old Testament law given to the nation of Israel, 600 commandments, some of them moral, many of them formal. Don't wear mixed fibers in your shirt. Don't do this on the Sabbath day. And by looking at that, they were supposed to know and eventually come to the conclusion, I can't keep God's law. It's only going to bring death to me. Verse number 10, and the commandment which was ordained to life, I found to be unto death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it slew me. So the commandment to me, oh, this is a good thing. Here's God's commandments. Paul said, I found it to be unto death because I found out I couldn't keep it. I couldn't do what it said. And it taught me that I was a sinner and that I could not come to God by earning it and by keeping what he had said. Sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me and by it slew me. This means, again, we think what? So this means the law is really bad, right? No, look at what verse 12 says. Wherefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy, and just, and good. It was not a bad thing. It was a good thing. For through it, God intended to graciously teach the nation of Israel and all mankind that we cannot, in our sinful state, earn our way to God, but instead we have to come to Jesus Christ. Verse 13, Was then that which is good made death unto me? God forbid. But sin, that it might appear sin, working death in me by that which is good, that sin by the commandment, might become exceeding sinful. It's that he wouldn't have known sin before. But now that he sees the commandment of God and his own inability to keep it becomes exceeding sinful. He now knows how serious that sin is and the weight that that sin carries before God. I have uh, some commentary from Matthew Henry that's a little bit lengthy. I try not to usually read this long, but if you'll just give me your attention, let me read it. He just puts it so good and so succinctly a kind of a summary of what it is that Paul is trying to get to in this section. He says the goal is to show the excellency and usefulness of the law and prove it from his own experience, notwithstanding a description of the conflict between grace and corruption in the heart. That's the part that we'll get to next week. He says that begins in verse 14 through to the end of the chapter. But in the beginning part of the chapter, he says this, Among other arguments used in the foregoing chapter to persuade us against sin and to holiness, this was one, that we are not under the law. And this argument is here further insisted upon and explained. We are delivered from the law. What is meant by this? And how is it an argument why sin should not reign over us, 
and why we should walk in newness of life. Number one, we are delivered from the power of the law, which curses and condemns us for the sin committed by us. So being dead to the law, we're delivered from the power that it has to condemn us. The sentence of the law against us is vacated and reversed by the death of Christ to all true believers. The law saith, the soul that sins, it shall die. But we are delivered from the law. The Lord has taken away thy sin, thou shalt not die. We are redeemed from the curse of the law. We are delivered from that power of the law, which irritates and provokes the sin that dwelleth in us. This, is, this the apostle seems especially to refer to, the motions of sins which were by the law. The law, by commanding, forbidding, threatening, corrupt and fallen man, but offering no grace to cure and strengthen, did but stir up the corruption, and like the sun shining upon a dunghill, excite and draw up the filthy steams. We being lamed by the fall, the law comes and directs us, but provides nothing to heal and help our lameness. Do you see what he's saying? The law says this cripples you if you can't keep it, but when we come to the understanding we can't keep it, it offers no way out. It's no grace. All it does is shine the light upon our sin, not show us how we can be delivered from the sin. And that makes us halt and stumble the more. Understand this of the law, not as a rule, but as a covenant of works. Now each of us, there is an argument why we should be holy, for here is encouragement to endeavors. Though in many things we come short, we are under grace which promises strength to do what it commands and pardon upon repentance when we do amiss. That's what's there in grace that's not there in the law. This is the scope of these verses in general, that in point of profession and privilege, we are under a covenant of grace and not under a covenant of works, under the gospel of Jesus Christ and not under the law of Moses. Praise the Lord. What was the Old Testament law? Here's what we'll, we'll spend most of the time we have left tonight. The Old Testament law was a temporary burden placed upon the nation of Israel in order to show them and all of mankind we are sinners and the death of Jesus Christ would be the only way to save us and to deliver us from our sins. We look at the law and you could read the specifics of it and you would say it's cruel it's heartless there's no grace in there how could a, a loving god put in such a brutal thing if you committed adultery or you were found to do these sins or you were rebellious to your parents and wouldn't repent you would literally be stoned to death we'd, we'd say that's that's brutal that's rough how could god even sanction that but we have to remember the law was never God's plan for all mankind. What was the law? The law was given to a specific nation, only one. It was never given to anyone outside of the nation of Israel. So it was given to a specific nation for a specific time. It was not meant to go on forever. It was only for Israel, and it was only for a certain amount of time. So to a specific people... To, for a specific time, for a specific purpose. You see, in all that brutality of the law, it was actually the heart 
of God to save as much of mankind as would want to receive him. Because unless we know we are sinners, we will not seek a Savior. Let's turn to Acts chapter number 10. And actually, now that I've told you that, I'll just read you the last verse I wanted to read tonight was verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. So he's saying the problem was not necessarily the law. The problem was me. The problem that the law exposed sin that I already had, whether I had known it because of the law or not. Acts chapter 10 And verse number 14. Let's actually read verse number 13. This is the vision that Peter had where some of the beasts came down that they were not allowed to eat under Old Testament law. Verse 13. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, Not so, Lord. I started preaching last uh, Sunday morning on Mark chapter 8 and how they say, well, Peter is the Pope because in this verse, Jesus said, I'll build my church upon, you know, thou art Peter and I'll build my church. Even though we know that's not talking about Peter, Jesus is talking about building the church on himself. And I said, well, about five verses later, he tells him, get thee behind me, Satan. So, you know, I'm just saying, if you want to say he's the Pope, it, it works both ways. But he did so good. And then he went back and rebuked Jesus, it says in Mark 8. He rebuked, which means to censure, to correct. And it's just, it's unbelievable how Peter could be so all over the place. And in one of the examples I want to get to in the next couple weeks of Sunday morning preaching, all the mistakes that Peter made, this one perhaps stands out above the rest. And Peter said, not so, Lord. Not, can you explain it again? Are you sure I understand you? No, God. Uh, no, I, you're, you, you're confused. <laughs> I wonder if we've ever stopped and said, not so, Lord, when God tells us what to do. Praise the Lord, he is a gracious God. And Peter said, not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. Why is that? He was a Jew. It was Old Testament law. You're not supposed to eat the pig. You're not supposed to eat shellfish. Was it what came from a cow? Was it anything? They had all kinds of restrictions on what they were supposed to eat. And in the vision, God shows him, go ahead, you can eat these. And he said, not so, Lord. I've never eaten it. I keep the law. Verse 15, and the voice spake unto him again the second time, what God hath cleansed, call not thou common. This was done thrice, and the vessel was received up again into heaven. Without taking time to preach through the whole story, there was a man named Cornelius, who was a centurion. He was of a good report from the Jews, but he was not a Jew. And he was seeking the truth. And God wanted to send Peter to him as a missionary to help him get saved. And God used the vision of the animals as an illustration to Peter to say, take the gospel to the Gentiles. But in so doing, he was showing him that those dietary restrictions of the Old Testament law were what? were now passed away. And we know from Timothy and other places in the New Testament, it says that we are allowed to eat meat. 
And in the latter day, some shall give heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. You say, doctrines that come from devils? That must be really bad. What is it? Two things it says. Forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats, which God created to be received with thanksgiving and them that know and love the truth. Amen. You say, well, that's amen. We get to eat the meat. But what the verse is, is saying is it's a doctrine of the devils to forbid what God allows. Right. And the example it uses, one is marriage. That's a wonderful thing. God said a bishop must be the husband of one wife. But the Catholic Church says if you're going to be a priest, you have to stay single. It's forbidding what God said was good. And all kinds of problems happen when mankind goes down that road. But then as another example, it says you're allowed to eat meat. The, that, the, why? Because the law is lifted. Even though the Old Testament law said you couldn't, now it is. So we're basically looking at verses that prove that the Old Testament law has passed away after we have received Jesus Christ. Let's look at Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15, I did this years ago where I preached through this whole chapter. I think it's fascinating. And I think at some point, hopefully fairly soon, I would like to preach through Acts chapter 15 and the topics and themes that it hits probably on a two-week sermon so I could fit it all in. But it's just, it's just amazing what it covers. Acts chapter 15, we'll just look at a couple of verses. Verse number one. And certain men which came down from Judea taught the brethren and said, Except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moses, ye cannot be saved. That's false doctrine. They were taking Jesus Christ, but they were saying, No, we don't want to be dead to the law so that we can receive Jesus. We just want to add Jesus to the law. But you have to be circumcised after the manner of Moses or you can't be saved. Remember, we said recently there's two types of legalism that you'll find in the dictionary. The one is this verse, that unless you follow the Old Testament law, you cannot save your soul. That's legalism. The other one we also find in the Bible because they were going to Jewish, non-Jewish believers, new converts who were Gentiles, and they weren't necessarily telling them you have to keep the law to be saved, but they were trying, remember it said, why are you, are you trying to get people to keep the feast days, the new moons, the Sabbath? Those things are done away in Jesus Christ. The other form of legalism is keeping a set of rules that aren't in the Bible and trying to force others to keep them as well. But this one in verse 1 was blatant heresy corrupting the gospel. Verse number 5. But there rose up certain of the sect of the Pharisees which believed, saying that it was needful to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. So one says you have to do it to get saved. The other says it's needful. It's necessary. Well, they had this sort of council where all these leaders met at Jerusalem and they had a big powwow and they were trying to figure this out. How, where do we fall? They didn't have a completed New Testament. What about Old Testament law? What are we supposed to keep? What are we supposed to tell new converts? Where does the law fall in? Verse number 15. And to this agree the words of the prophets. This is a summary giving their answer after they had their council deciding upon this matter. And to this agree the words of the prophets, as it is written. Do I have the right verse there? I'm sorry, I was supposed to read you verse number 10. Verse number 10. Now, therefore, why tempt ye God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? I've, I've referenced that verse a few times recently, too. And there it is. 
your, you as Jews nor your fathers weren't able to bear the yoke of the law. They weren't able to bear it. That was the point of it. It was given to show them they were sinners and they would not be able to bear it. Verse number 23. This is the finding that they wrote in letters. I'm sorry for confusing that. Verse 23. And they wrote letters by them after this manner. The apostles and elders and brethren send greeting unto the brethren, which are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Sicilia. For as much as we have heard that certain which went out from us have troubled you with words, subverting your souls, saying ye must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such commandment. It's not of God. That's not the right doctrine telling people you have to keep Old Testament law. Why? It has passed away in Jesus Christ. And part of what I'll get to if we, when we get back to this chapter, they said, we, it, verse 28, For it seemed good to the Holy Ghost and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that ye abstain from meats offered to idols, and from blood, and from things strangled, and from fornication, from which if ye keep yourselves, ye shall do well, fare ye well. So they looked at all the Old Testament law and they said, what are we supposed to lay on people? We don't want to lay on them a burden greater than what God would. Now, obviously, those three things are not the only commands for a Christian. But as they looked to Old Testament law and said, well, what can we do or can't we do? In this time around Jerusalem, the Romans and the pagans, when they worshiped their idols, they would have services where they took animals and sacrificed them to their idols. They would drink the blood, they would take the carcass, and they would sell it at the market. And if you follow through all the places where Paul talks about this in the New Testament, he said it's not even necessarily that the animal was sacrificed to an idol. He said if you buy it in the market, you don't have to ask, was this killed? He said, if it's sanctified by the word of God in prayer, it doesn't have some magical power over you. If, if you or I bought a piece of meat in Walmart not knowing it was sacrificed to an idol, it's not going to curse us with voodoo. But the reason he gave, I'm, I'm preaching the whole other message now, which I don't want to do. I'm just trying to prove the law has passed away. But the reason he gives is that the Jews who were looking at newly converted Christians would be so offended by the fact that they were eating meat that had been sacrificed to an idol that it would hurt their ability to reach them with the gospel. So herein comes restrictions, voluntarily saying, well, I, I don't have to not eat that meat, but in my liberty I can choose not to because it will help me reach people with the gospel because that's what matters. Paul said to eat meat or to not eat meat doesn't matter, but charity matters loving people, not offending the weaker brother or not offending the one who might come to Jesus Christ. As an American, if we were called to the nation of India to be a missionary, and well, I know my Christian liberty, I can do whatever I want. I'm going to have a barbecue in my front yard every night. If you did that, what they believe about reincarnation, that is false. But they're so into vegetarianism because they think their ancestors could be reincarnated into animals, that if you went in your front yard and smoked meat every night, you would probably destroy your ability to make a relationship with them and give them the gospel. So the point is not to come up with a bunch of rules that we think make us better than other people that aren't in the Bible and then force other people to keep them or say, you're not as spiritual as us. It's about love. It's about the gospel. 
It's about bringing people to Jesus Christ and sometimes choosing to not do things that we could do because we care about people and we want to see them saved. Do you see what I'm saying about the Spirit versus the letter? Let's turn to the book of Galatians chapter 3, but Jason, would you turn to John chapter 8? And uh, Andrew, would you look to Hebrews chapter 10? In a moment, I'll have you read those verses. We're running out of time here. But Galatians chapter 3 and verse 19. I think we're just going to machine gun style read a whole bunch of verses here in the next five minutes and then be done. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 19. Wherefore then serveth the law? It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. Now a mediator is not a mediator of one, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid. For if there had been a law given, which could have given life, verily righteousness should have come by the law. But it was not given so that life could come by it. It was given to prove that it could not come by it. But the scripture, verse 22, hath concluded all under sin, that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up unto the faith which should afterward be revealed. Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. What's a schoolmaster? It's your teacher. The law was my teacher, teaching me what? That I'm a sin, a sinner, and that I must be brought to Jesus Christ. That was the purpose of the law. Verse 25, but after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. We're not under the law anymore. Paul says it flat out. If people want to get into Jewish culture and go keep feast days and do all that type of stuff, I'm not going to argue with them. But if they start saying that's more spiritual than not doing it or telling others you're wrong for having church on Sunday like they did in the New Testament, you need to have church on Saturday and the Sabbath like they did in the Old Testament, then you're wrong because he said we're not under the law anymore. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 12. As many as desire to make a fair show in the flesh, they constrain you to be circumcised, only lest they should suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. Again, telling people, keep the circumcision, do what the law says to do. But it says they were doing it lest they should suffer persecution. They were too afraid as Jews to say they don't have to keep our law because they would get blowback from other Jews. And Peter actually did that. He was refusing to fellowship with new Gentile believers and share meals with them when the Jews showed up. He, he withdrew from them because he was afraid. And the Apostle Paul said, I withstood him to the face in the cafeteria. He went up. He said, you're wrong. Don't shun them because you're afraid of what people think of you. Okay, I said I was just going to read the verses. Verse 13. <laughs> For neither they themselves who are circumcised keep the law, but desire to have you circumcised that they may glory in your flesh. Pharisees weren't keeping the law perfectly either, but they wanted a woman stoned just so Jesus could be trapped. Verse 14, But God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision, 
but a new creature. Remember, Paul went into the temple and went through a ritualistic purification with some of the Jewish men who were doing that so he could intentionally show the Jews, I'm not saying it's a sin for you to be a Jew. I'm saying you being a Jew and keeping the law is not going to get you to heaven and don't try to force that on anyone else. Circumcision, uncircumcision, it doesn't avail anything, but in Jesus Christ, we are a new creature, no matter where you're from, no matter what your name is. Jason, um, where did I tell you? John 8, 5 through 11? Yes. John 8, 5 through 11. Now Moses and the law commanded us that such should be stoned, but what sayest thou? This they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down, and with his finger wrote on the ground, as though he heard them not. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself, and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And again he stooped down, and wrote on the ground. And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. There we have an example of Jesus not enforcing the law. He gave grace, but he said, go and sin no more. It's what Paul was saying, dead to the law that we may now walk in newness of life. And if Andrew, if you'll read Hebrews 10, 1 through 4, then we'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. For the law having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of those things, can never with those sacrifices, which they offered year by year continually, make the corners thereunto, or the comers thereunto perfect. For then they would have not ceased to be offered, because the worshipers once purged uh, should have no more conscience of sins. But in those sacrifices there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. Never part of God's plan for an animal sacrifice to take away our sin. Not in that dispensation, not in this one. The sacrifices could not make the comers perfect. The blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. If that was God's plan, it would have continued instead of stopping. Let's pray, uh, and if Rachel will play, we'll be dismissed as Jason passes the offering plate. Heavenly Father, we love you. Thank you that we could be here to study your word tonight. May we rejoice tonight that our name is written in heaven and that we are not under the law, but under grace. Thank you for saving our soul. Be with all the prayer requests that were given here tonight and bless every person for choosing to be in your house. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.